0: We're going to be in First John this morning, so if you have a Bible, you can turn to the book we call First John. We'll be in the fifth chapter. I want to begin by quoting a couple of famous coaches. We're not even sure who said it first, but the saying goes like this. Winning isn't everything, comma, it's the only thing. Winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. And you may or may not like that way of thinking. You may or may not like that statement, especially given our era of participation trophies. I would like to suggest to you that when it comes to the ultimate things, the most important things, the biggest things in life, winning isn't just everything. Winning is everything. in the spiritual realm, winning... I said that wrong, didn't I? Is everything and the only thing. Because, in the end, when it comes to the biggest things, we all eventually lose. Sin will get the best of us. And even if you... Win a temporary battle with your health, eventually, everyone loses the battle. And not only that, if we haven't had our sins dealt with, we won't breathe our last breath and end up in a better place. Because we'll meet God and then we have to answer for our spiritual rebellion a pretty heavy reality winning is everything and winning is the only thing that ultimately matters in the spiritual realm and that is why we need the Lord Jesus Christ because the Lord Jesus Christ the Bible teaches is the victor he is the winner he is the champion and not only is he the victor the conqueror he is the conquering victor on our behalf. He won the battle if you will, and was raised from the dead and he was raised from the dead on behalf of everyone who would ever believe. Winning is everything when it comes to the spiritual realm. 1 John chapter 5 fascinatingly enough says in verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world? There's our word, victory, winning. We were singing about it just a little while ago in Romans chapter 8 in the new song. Who is it that conquers the world? The world here representing rebellion against God and all that goes with it, suffering, pain, heartache, death, condemnation. Who is it that is the victor? Who is it that is the winner over when it comes to the world? Notice what it says except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. It's great. It's awesome. We're going to focus on victory today. Okay? We're going to focus on victory in Christ, because if you are in Christ by faith, you're trusting in Him, then you have overcome the world. Because as His work has already been done for you and you're resting in Him, you too are the one who has conquered, overcome, Nikao, where we get Nike. You have nikao You are the victor. It's awesome. This is Christian ABCs. Christianity is for losers. That's true. But everyone who is truly a Christian is a victor, guaranteed, because Christ is the victor. So we're going to learn about that this morning. I love, obviously, I'm already preaching about it, and I'm not even into the text yet. Um, but we're going to focus on that today, because this is what we all need. No one w- would escape having this kind of need. We need to win. We need a winner. And Christ is the one who assures us of victory because of His First John deals with false teachers who are trying to have you, um, have no assurance of victory, or they're trying to have you have assurance in the wrong things. And John is helping us have assurance by looking at the one true Christ and the work of the Spirit and the plan of the Father. And so we're learning about assurance in First John. First John repeats itself a lot. Uh, someone described it as a, as a spiral staircase. Um, and, and the the higher you climb, you can still fixate your your gaze and your vision on an object down below, but you can see it now from different angles. It's kind of a good word picture of the repetition in First John. It's about assurance. It's about knowing, having confidence regarding eternal life. And in chapter 5, today we're going to look at verses 1 to 5. Uh, if you'd like an outline, here's my outline for this morning. We'll look at four results of being born of God. Four results of being born of God. What happens if you're born of God? And John has talked a lot about that, how we're made new, how we're born. Uh, He learned this from Jesus, like in John chapter 3. Jesus says you must be born again, a second time spiritual birth, great metaphor. So what are the results of being born of God? These are designed to give you assurance, confidence, the first result of being born of God, the last one's victory by the way, the, the first one is believing in Jesus. The first result of being born of God is believing in Jesus. And I, and I hope you got your second cup of coffee today for this one. Uh, or whatever it is you need to have a little uh, extra attentiveness. This is designed to give us assurance. How can I know? How can I have confidence? Well, if you're born of God, you can have confidence. But how can I know if I'm born of God? One way you can know you're born of God is if you believe. If you're believing in Jesus. So let's go ahead and see it in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone, this is inclusive, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, he's probably using that as shorthand because Jesus is the Messiah, the long-expected one, the Deliverer, the one who brings forgiveness, the one who brings propitiation, all of those things he's been talking about, he just summarizes it as the Christ. But whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Your translation might say it a little bit differently, but I'm reading from the ESV this morning and, and it captures the right idea. Everyone who's believing in Jesus has been born of God. You need to be born of God or you can't see the kingdom of God is what Jesus says. How can I know that I'm believing in Jesus? Or how can I know that I've been born of God? Well, if you're believing in Jesus, that should give you some assurance. I'm getting a little smile on my face because this isn't something we think about very often. So we are going to dig in a little bit. Not all Christians believe this. And I think it's one reason why we lack assurance. The Bible certainly teaches, Jesus taught it again and again and again, and John has taught it in 1 John, that if you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life. That's meant to give you assurance, right? He's the object of your faith. You're trusting in the one who conquered. Believe in Jesus and you're guaranteed eternal life, right? That should give you assurance because you're believing in Jesus, the resurrected one. That should give you assurance. But here we're seeing, we can even back it up a, a step. And there's another source. am not saying it's better. It's just another source. How can I have assurance Well, you can have assurance that you're born of God if you are believing. Ever thought about that? It's pretty amazing. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 says, before you're a Christian, you're dead in trespasses and sins. Not physically dead, spiritually dead. Right? Ephesians 2. Dead in trespasses and sins. Children of wrath. Children of the devil. I'm paraphrasing. Then he says, but God. But God what? Made us alive. He's using different verbiage, but he's saying the same thing. But God made us alive together with Him. And then he goes on to talk about about being saved by grace through faith in Christ. 8 and 9, we know those verses. I would suggest to you that the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John have the same understanding of how this works. And now we're in the thick of things. And now there's theological debate. and, and, And now there's argument. What comes first? Does new birth come first? And then faith, and then we're justified, eternal life and all those things. Or does faith come first, and then as a result of faith, we have new birth? 1 John chapter 5 teaches that the new birth comes before faith. Where does faith come from? God makes makes us alive. And and it's true, you must believe. It's absolutely critical that you believe for eternal life. But where does that come from? Put it another way, is the new birth, being born of God, a reward for your faith? No. Dead in trespasses and sins, God makes us alive together with Him. There in our text, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. It's meant to give you more assurance. Because here I am today, believing in Jesus. I'm believing that Jesus is my Savior, and that's good news, and that gives me assurance because of who He is. But it also can give me assurance because I'm believing. I was spiritually dead, and now I'm believing. And that's a source of assurance. Assurance. And that's, you know, I realize this is not what Arminianism teaches. This is not what revivalism teaches. It's what a lot of Christians don't know and understand and never thought about. But I'm suggesting to you that it's actually a great source of assurance. I didn't believe and now I believe that's evidence that I've been born from above. Wow. So I am saying, to put it in theological language, that regeneration precedes faith because i think first john teaches that and i think paul teaches that as well and you say well, why do i need to know that it's one of the sources in the bible for assurance one person put it this way faith is the consequence not the cause of your being born of god Now let's talk about the practical. But we already did. It's meant to give you assurance. I'm finding myself believing in Jesus. You've experienced a miracle. (laughs) Because you were spiritually dead. And now you're alive. And evidence of that is that you're believing in Jesus. That's a miracle. Then what's... Flesh this out, we'll do the other points faster, I promise. But let's even think about how we do things as Christians. How we share the gospel with people. If I believed that if I could get someone to believe that God would then make them new as a result of me getting them to believe, I would do evangelism a certain way. If I believed, like 1 John chapter 5, and I do believe that God has to make someone new, and if He does, they will believe I do evangelism a different way. One looks a lot like a sales pitch. The other one is a proclamation of good news. Oh, and by the way, God uses the preaching, the proclamation... To bring about this work. That's how he's chosen to do it. This is Romans chapter 10. So here's what I do. I preach the gospel to everyone anywhere, anytime I tell them the good news about Jesus, that He is the sinless one, the perfect one, the, the one who came and did everything right, that He voluntarily went to the cross and died a sinner's death even though He never sinned as an atoning sacrifice, that He was raised from the dead victorious and the victor for everyone who would ever believe in Him. And I urge people to believe in Jesus because it's a command. Acts chapter 16. Tell anyone everywhere, all over the place, doesn't matter who they are, believe in Jesus and you will be saved. But I also know that I know that I know that I know it's not up to me to get them to believe. It's up to God. It's a good little litmus test. If somebody believes regeneration comes as a result of faith... Evangelism methods are going to look a certain way. How about a book called How to Be Born Again? Can you tell someone how to be born again? Step one it assumes step one is believe in Jesus. And the reward is, you're born again. I would suggest to you that we proclaim the gospel to spiritually dead people. Praying. Praying, right? Why would we pray? Because God has to do it. We pray that God would see fit to use the proclamation of the gospel to bring about the new birth, to be born uh, from above, and that they would then therefore, they will, they, they would therefore believe in Jesus and be saved. I like talking about these things because I like preaching the gospel. But I don't like selling the gospel. We would do the church service here a lot different too, by the way. How can we orchestrate things? How can we do this step and this step and this step so that we could then bring people to the place where we get them to believe And as a result, they'll be born from above. We would do it a lot differently if that's the perspective we follow. We'd do it so much differently. The great preacher, Charles Grandison Finney, called those the new measures, the new methodology. Because he didn't believe people were dead in their trespasses and sins. And he believed he could convert anyone. Because he was a good arguer. He was a good attorney. And he knew how to do it. He most definitely believed that belief comes and then comes new life. And he could get anyone to believe. It was Finney who said later in his life that the vast majority of his converts were a disgrace to the Christian religion. We don't want to convert anybody. But we do want God to. So we preach Christ. We proclaim Christ. It's exciting. It's awesome. It's great. I love to do evangelism. I love to tell people about Christ. I love to urge them to believe in Jesus. And all the while praying for them that the Spirit of God would work in their hearts. Must one be born again? Yeah, that's John chapter 3. But D- Jesus doesn't say, and here is how you do it. In fact, in fact, we might not get past point one, not one today. In fact, in fact, in John chapter three, Jesus then goes on to talk about the work, the mysterious work, the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit works mysteriously because we can't harness the Holy Spirit and he likens the Holy Spirit to wind. We see its effects. We see what it does but we don't harness it and use it as some sort of thing in our hand. You must be born from above. You must. And it evidences itself in you believing in Jesus. That's why my favorite evangelists in Christian history, beyond the apostles, are people like William Carey took the gospel profoundly and powerfully to India. Uh, George Whitfield believed this. Great evangelist. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great evangelist of London, believed this. So they didn't have to try to manipulate people. Well, we are way off what we need to be talking about. But it is a key text when it comes to this issue. And what we need to be talking about in context is if you're believing in Jesus today, it's a sign that you've been born from above. But God intervened when Pat Abendroth was dead in trespasses and sins. And he made me alive together with Christ. For by grace you've been saved. Wow. So if you're believing in Jesus, that should give you assurance. Because you're trusting in the victor. But even the fact that you're believing should give you assurance. Because you're not spiritually dead anymore. Well, let's move on. Let's move on to number two, a second result of being born of God, and that is loving. Another evidence, and we've seen this a lot in 1 John, you're going to have a love that you didn't have before. How about verse one, where it goes on to say, and everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him. So you have a love for the Father. That would give you assurance you have a love you didn't have. And we've learned that the reason you have a love for the Father in a true sense is because he had a love for you first, chapter 4. And that gives you assurance that it's part of the purposes of God. But now he's saying that you, at the end of the verse there, if you love whoever has been born of him, it's evidence that you have a true love for God. This is water under the bridge. We've been talking about this. Maybe we're on the spiral staircase looking at it from a different angle. But if you're here today and you have a love for other people who've experienced the new birth, it's meant to give you assurance. I'm in the family. I'm part of this family. I like what John says in the book of Revelation. Uh, I'm in the family of these people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Well, I, I like people who are like me. Yeah, that's the natural thing to do, is to like people who are like you. But supernaturally, if you're a Christian, you've been born from above, now you're in this new family, and now you have a love for people who aren't like you and who don't even have the same interests as you, but they have the ultimate same interests as you. It's awesome. It's great. It's the unity of the body amidst the diversity gives evidence of the saving work of Christ And you have this affection, this this brotherly, sisterly kind of affection for other people that you wouldn't have otherwise. It's awesome. We probably don't need to emphasize that much more because we've seen it here. I like what John Stott said. True love is not the victim of our emotions, but the servant of our will. True love is not the victim of our emotions, but the servant of our will. It's somewhat applicable here. I may not naturally be drawn to loving people who I don't find lovely. But I know things. John has been talking about that like crazy. You know, you know, you know, you know. If I know that this is true about Jesus and I've come to believe in Him, evidence of the new birth, and you believe in Jesus, trusting in Him, evidence of the new birth, we're in the same family and so I can know and I can love even if I'm not necessarily emotionally, naturally wired that way. Some of you have seen the movie or read the book, The End of the Spear. Uh, I don't like to give full support for stories I don't know all the details of, so maybe some of you know something I don't know, but I did a little due diligence, and it seems on on the up and up. End of the Spear. Steve Saint, son of Nate Saint, meeting tribesmen. Who killed his father, and who had since come to experience saving grace? Some of you were there. We heard. We heard that we, we, we heard the two of them speaking together, the son and the tribesman, sharing the pulpit, if you will. It's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Bringing the gospel to these people who hadn't heard the gospel and they kill you for it. Fast forward. Faithful proclamation. Work of God. Believing in Jesus. Loving those who've been loved of God. But you don't have to make a movie about it. This room is filled with opportunities and examples. Kind of people I used to not like. Nice way of saying it. I now am free and empowered because I've been born from above, by the way, to genuinely, past emotion, love. It's a testimony of the work of Christ, it's a testimony of the work of the Spirit. And it's designed to give you assurance. I can know. How can I know God's worked in my life? I have a love that I didn't have before. Now he looks at this from a little bit different angle, a different kind of approach in verse 2, and then we'll move on to the third point. But different angle. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. He's kind of saying the same thing, but he's saying it from a different angle and and it's interesting how one feeds the other and they work together. I like it that that happens. Let's move on. A third outcome, a third result of being born from above. Number three, we're doing four of these. Obeying. 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 And he kind of already has hit on this, but we're going to save it for verse 3. Look there with me if you would. For this is the love of God. That we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. I like that. This is the love of God. That we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. We'll talk about why they aren't burdensome and how this is designed to give you assurance. But first... It's kind of puzzling, isn't it? In verse 3: For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Seems like it should say, This is our love for God that we keep his commandments. But he said, This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And I don't want to push it too much, but, but the, the idea might be—it seems in light of the whole and the flow of things—this is this is God's love plan, if you will. Right from the beginning, we're supposed to love God, appropriate and love neighbor. We don't. It's called sin. And we learned last week God then therefore loves us and rescues us, and then we're back to doing the right thing as a result of of what God did, and that's loving. And that brings restoration. It brings true humanness. It brings. Completion to God's plan for humanity—that might be what He has in mind here. This is the love of God that we would keep His commandments. This has gone full circle. This is this is restoration. This is this is uh, completion. We keep His commandments. Oh, and by the way, you, you you could you could think of other commands, but in the context here, don't don't leave out love first and foremost. Because you can boil down the commands to loving God and loving neighbor. So here we have it. Amazingly enough, this is the love of God. That we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. It's like Jesus saying, if you love me, you will keep my commandments in John chapter 14, verse 15. Now, please don't strip this out of its context. Remember, He's talked to us about Jesus The righteous for us, chapter 2. Jesus, the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice so that we could be forgiven. Right. First and foremost, it's that. But now that we've experienced that, now that we've come to believe in Jesus, the Spirit of God has opened our eyes and made us alive together with Him. Now that this has happened, we definitely need to take this into account. In light of the gospel, because of the gospel, because of God's love for us, now we have, this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. How is it that God's commandments can no longer be burdensome? Only if there's no condemnation. Right? Right? So if we start with God said, love me, love neighbor. And we're all in Adam. And so that's not good news. That's bad news. We're going to beat our heads against the wall and his commandments are burdensome. We're spiritually dead, right? So that makes it burdensome. But not only is it burdensome, knowing that we're not going to pass the test, so to speak. It means condemnation in the end. It's the right thing to do. We know it's the right thing to do. And we're just going to have a burden like you ain't ever seen. Burden of burdens. Then, because of God's love for us, because of restoration, because of the work of Christ, because of reconciliation, because atonement happens in Christ, now we're called to do the right thing. And now it's come to completion. It's not a burden. It's not a burden, number one, because you are a new creature empowered by the Spirit whose fruit starts with love. Okay? It's not burdensome because now actually you can do the right thing. Even if you're not perfected yet, chapter 3, you can do the right thing. And not only that, it's not burdensome because you no longer have a sentence of condemnation hanging around your neck. It was nailed to the cross. <laughs> it's awesome. This has been stressed a lot in 1 John, and I've been stressing it, and I'll stress it one more time. Commandments are not burdensome. Commandment is another word for law. Law is not burdensome. And now, this is why, by the way, we have these great statements by believers, like in Psalm 19, in Psalm 119, in, in Psalm 19 and 119. He uses all these different words, all these different synonyms. God's Word, His commandments, His testimonies, His rules it even uses, His law. It's talking about the same thing. The directive of God, the law of God, the rules of God, the commandments of God. And Psalm 19 and Psalm 119 can't say enough good things about it. Because the writer is writing as one who is not under condemnation. He can have assurance. In fact, he can not only have assurance, he can have delight. It's not a burden, it's actually a delight. Psalm 19, verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul. Then he goes on to call it rules. How about verse 10? More to be desired. He's talking about God's law, God's commandment, God's rules. More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Oh, I love it. It's so wonderful. An unbeliever is not saying that. Psalm 119, it's sweet, sweeter than honey in my mouth. It's a lamp to my feet. It's a light to my path, verse 105. Psalm 119, verse 12, blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. In the way of your testimonies or your law, I delight. Much as in all riches, I will delight in your statutes. Verse 77, for your law is my delight. I have a question for you. Do, do, do you have some sharing and that kind of affection for God's law? If you do, it's a sign of new birth. The work of God His. his, his performed its work in your life and and now you have new desires and you have a desire to keep God's commandments and they're not burdensome. I don't want to be like the false teachers who say you can just live however you want to live. I don't want to be like that. But I also want to not be like the false teachers who say if you don't do this perfectly then you are smoked. Smoked writing to Christians. I would say that to (laughs) un-Christians. But writing to Christians, you're supposed to do the right thing. You're commanded to do the right thing. In fact, it gives you assurance where you're doing the right thing. The work of God in your life. You've been born from above. You have new desires. But you can also, because you're not going to be like Christ, perfected until you see Christ, chapter 3... In the meantime, in the here and now, you can delight in the good instruction of God, His commandments. Oh, this is wonderful. This is great. He knows best for my life. He knows best for my relationships. He knows best for my work life. He knows best for my perspective on things. What a delight His instruction is. Ah, it's not burdensome. Satan the accuser. There's Pat again. What a slacker. I thought he had the Holy Spirit. I'm thankful for Jesus, my advocate, claiming me as his own. And you know, now I can, I, I can love those commandments. I can love those commandments and they're not burdensome. Because I'm not going to be condemned for not keeping them perfectly. It's exciting. If you don't have this desire, this, 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 if it's only a burden to you, what God says, I'm, I, I'm thankful that it's only a burden to you, and at least you sense that because it's a sign that you shouldn't have assurance. Assurance comes from the work of God in your life. Birthing into the family. Believing in Jesus. Trusting in Him. And with all that comes new affections. Let's now go to number four and wrap things up. Number four, the final result, outcome of being born from above is what we started with in the introduction. Number four, it's winning. Because winning is everything. (laughs) And winning is the only thing. When it comes to the ultimate issues in life. How about verse four? It's awesome. For everyone, notice inclusivity, for everyone who has been born of God... Overcomes, there's our victory word, overcomes the world. Sin, all the things associated with it, condemnation, suffering, hostility, pain, agony, depression, I mean, whatever has come as a result of the fall. God overcomes The world, whoever has been born of God, overcomes, is victorious. The word is actually used outside of the Bible for battles, for athletic competitions, for court cases. Victory! We win! It's done! (laughs) If you're born from above, born of God, you've overcome, you've been victorious over the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. I love it. Nikao our faith. In context, flashing, right? Our faith in Christ because He is the one who is the victor, the conqueror. I'm believing in Jesus. The, the work of God has happened in my life and that means therefore winning Verse 5, who is it that overcomes? Here we go again. Who is it that's victorious? Who who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? I love that. I mean, that says everything and more. Who is it that overcomes? Who is victorious? Who is it that wins? The one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. It's ultimate winning. That's what I meant when I said winning is everything and winning is the only thing. Because of sin, we all lose. We all lose. We lose in life because it's not if I, it's when I die. And we even talk about Death sometimes in these terms. Well, uh, so-and-so lost a long battle with lung cancer. Well, whether it's lung cancer or something else, we're all going to lose the battle. But that's just the beginning of problems. And then we meet God. And it's been appointed for us to die and then face judgment the new testament says <sighs> winning is everything and if you trust in Christ you have nikao victory this is what makes 1st corinthians 15 so awesome about resurrection I mean, just just listen to a couple of lines. It's so good. It's a great compliment. Death is swallowed up in victory. Verse 55, Oh, death, where is your victory? Crickets, right? Death loses because of life in the resurrected Christ. The victor. It's awesome. I saw at least one of you mouthing the words victory in Jesus earlier. I busted you. I won't call you out. But it's what's on my mind. When Molly and I lived in Southern California in the San Fernando Valley, we drove past Victory Boulevard like a zillion times a day. And whenever my mom was with me, every single time she would sing it, "Victory in Jesus." You know, she just got the big hair going and the whole thing. It's like, you know, I'm just glad I was a Christian at the time, or I would have given her the left foot of fellowship. <laughs> but signs of the new birth, right? But never once. Never once did I ever drive by Victory Boulevard without thinking victory in Jesus. It's a great line because it boils down the most basic thing you need and that is victory. Because victory is everything. And it is ours in Christ. If you've been born from above, guaranteed victory in Christ. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the hope that is ours in him. Thank you for the spiral st- staircase of a book where we can look at things again and again from different perspectives and different angles for those who are not trusting in Jesus, for those who have not experienced life from above, we ask you to do what only you can do. That through the proclamation of the gospel, you might see fit, please Lord, to cause them to be born again, as Paul says. That they would come to believe in Jesus, they would come to have him as their Victor. And may we who trust in Christ find ourselves built up, encouraged, grateful, longing to obey you because your commandments are not burdensome in Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.